Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of WCL Pure One Ocean. I'm Reese, I'm your host, and I hope this finds you healthy, safe, and staying sane wherever you're listening. Um, this week, we talk about how to save the ocean. And it's important and topical because this week is also the International Day for Biodiversity. It's on May 22nd, and the day is meant to celebrate the incredible biodiversity, the plants and animals around us that we you know, love for the sake of their beauty, but also because they provide incredible ecosystem services to us as humans, and they're critical for our existence on this planet. And so there's a real strong effort to actually protect them. And if we don't, we're in trouble. So to talk about how we protect them and how we protect the ocean is my good friend and mentor, Lisa Spear. Lisa works at the Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, or NRDC, where she's the director of the International Oceans Program. I've seen her work behind the scenes uh, at the United Nations. I've seen her work at the climate conferences, and I know and understand the way that she is paving the way for nations, nonprofit groups and uh, all sorts of environmentalists to protect the ocean. And I'm really honored to have her here and to share with you the a preview uh, of our upcoming campaign to protect the ocean. So please join me in this conversation, listen in, understand how we together are all going to save our one shared ocean. Here's Lisa Spear. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being on the show. Hi, Reese. I'm delighted to be here. It's always good to connect. Um, Lisa, you you have an incredible background. Um, you've been with the NRDC for how long now? 37 years. 30, ah. 37 years? Before long, you were born. That's, that's basically, that's <laughs> right on point as long as I've been alive. Um, that's incredible. And so you are the director of the International Oceans Program for the NRDC, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm very fortunate to have this wonderful job where I get to work with people like you. <laughs> I don't know if that is a benefit of, of, of this role. Um, but quickly, before we dive into the NRDC and your program, who are you? Give us a little bit more background about you. Yeah, How do you so, define yourself? So I am actually a child of the mountains. I climb and ski. I'm not a surfer. I have no, That's okay. I would not know one end of a surfboard from the other. <laughs> And God knows, I know you can't sink them, but I'd find a way <laughs> if you ever let me on one. So, but I love the ocean, and I love the um, the feeling about uh, this really neglected part of our planet that hasn't received the kind of conservation attention that many other pieces of our world have. And so, I've really been a very uh, passionate about the ocean, really, right from year one. That's awesome, and um, so. Is that how did you get into the NRDC? I mean, it, it sounds like you've been there a long time, most of your career. But was there a path there through another oceans program or work? So um, I got a degree actually in forestry, and the degree in forestry really taught me how connected everything is. And so when a spot opened up at NRDC, I thought, you know, it the Earth, the natural world onshore, offshore, it doesn't matter. It's all connected. And I really fell in love with the ocean as soon as I got in there and, and have been there ever since. So, And I mean, you have a marine science degree also, right? I, I do or not. No. Oh, you do I, not. Why am I, why am I mistaken there? I have a master's degree in forest, forestry and environmental studies. So how'd you make the pivot to fisheries work and ocean management? What, how did that happen? Well, it was the job that was available. <laughs> 
And I had um, an NRDC tends to hire from, you know, graduate programs of fairly good um good reputations and I happened to come from one. And uh, so I was very lucky to get my job and to to work with my team and have been uh, active ever since on the ocean and really would not have it any other way. That's awesome. So, okay. So um, for those who don't know, what is the NRDC? So the NRDC is an awesome organization of lawyers and scientists and policy advocates like me and we are all over the world. We have offices throughout the United States. We are we have an office in India and in China, and we do a lot of work in Latin America as well. So our goals are to protect people, to protect the natural world. That means clean water, clean air, healthy climate, healthy natural systems. And we're backed up by an amazing crew of 3 million, more than 3 million members and, and online activists who have been hugely influential in moving forward on conservation on a whole range of issues. So really a great place to be. We're a nonprofit uh, and we're, I'm based here in New York. Actually, I'm in Connecticut, but our headquarters are in New York and that's where I'm based. That's awesome. And so you mentioned um, this sort of the your scientists and lawyers. So um, I imagine that that balance, or I mean, I know what it is, but for, for those listening who maybe don't understand how that works, I mean, it essentially is science informing policy and then lawyers going out and enforcing and or trying to uh, create regulations for that policy. Is that correct? I mean, is that the sort of balance? That's exactly right. And so, for example, um, a lot of the lawyers at NRDC got together with some scientists and collaborated to essentially write portions of the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act back in the 1970s. So for 50 years, we've been out there writing legislation, working in Congress, working with the administration, but also working in other countries to try to advance our goals. Everything is based on science and everything is based on law. And so we try to improve the law. We try to implement the law. We try to enforce the law. That's our modus operandi. Yeah. And, I, you know, you mentioned that international work and I was very lucky to come out and join you early on when we first got to know each other. You invited me out and you said, if, hey, if you're going to be in New York, come check out the UN High Seas Treaty Negotiations. That's so at the United Nations. And I was kind of like, sounds interesting. Super cool. I'm into it. I had no idea what to expect. I wore my not wetsuit, but my dry suit, which is my actual suit. Um, cause I was like, I'm going to the UN. I guess I need to dress like an adult. And, um, I showed up and I got to be behind the scenes with you as you were doing your work. So maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, how your work at the NRDC translates. Like what, what is the NRDC doing in that room? And then tell us about the high seas treaty negotiation and why it's important. Yeah, great. So part of making law is making treaties. And uh, the ocean beyond national jurisdiction, that's the international portion of our ocean, which is two thirds of the ocean. It actually covers nearly half the planet. Wow. And nobody knows about it. And it's managed <laughs> right now the way that we used to manage forests in the 60s and 70s, where the users are the ones that are making the rules. And there's no real comprehensive integrated management or conservation. When you say the users are the ones making the rules, you mean the the fisheries or the foresters, right? So pe the, the, the lumberers who are going out there and chopping them down. Saying, These are the rules. This is how we do it. And there's no one really safeguarding the interests of either the, the trees or the fish themselves 
or the people who depend on those habitats. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So seabed miners are uh, basically running the seabed mining show. Uh, the fisher. What is, what is seabed mining? So this is a really scary new, uh, relatively new um, industrial activity that is moving out into the ocean. So the world is short on cobalt, manganese, uh, other metals that are important for our electronics, you know, our batteries and our stuff. batteries, right. our, you know, our cars, et cetera. And uh, so proposals have been made to mine the seabed for these minerals. And the, 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 the idea of going out and strip mining the ocean floor and generating huge plumes and destroying everything in in the path is is really scary, but it's already begun begun to to work its way through the process. So there is an elaborate international institution that is now forming regulations on how these minerals should be mined. Our view is we shouldn't be at we shouldn't be out there mining the ocean floor. There's no way to it's it would be like um, a strip mine in Utah. Just think about those pictures you've seen. We don't want to do that in the ocean. There's right. no way to control anything. And so um, our view is there ought to be a moratorium on seabed mining. Wow. So, yeah. Okay, but so I interrupted you. Sorry, question. that's just yeah. one of the many different <laughs> things that's going on out there. So back to the original question. Let's talk about the high seas yeah. a little bit more. So the high seas, it's like the Wild West. There's no rules. There's no regulations. There's very few sheriffs. And you have all kinds of things happening out there as coastal areas have become depleted industries are moving farther and farther out of offshore and into international waters. Again, this is the water that's beyond the 200 mile limit of that belongs to individual countries. And that's the so, EEZ exclusive exactly. economic zone, right? So every country exactly. has some EEZ and depending on how much coastline you have, the more EEZ you have theoretically, right? So some of the bigger countries, as I understand it, like France is huge because of mm -hmm. all the islands they have. Uh, Chile, United States, other uh, Australia, obviously. Any others that are on that top five or ten list that I'm not thinking um, of? Russia, a very substantial one as well. So, yeah. but um, and the so, so it's an increasingly busy ocean out there, right? And because the rules are so weak, there's very little to prevent the kinds of problems that have plagued coastal areas. So increasingly, we're seeing shipping. But pollution, dead zones, you know, all of the things that we've all seen close by as we move into this area. So the United Nations decided after quite a long period of time of us pushing along to commence negotiating a new treaty that would improve and strengthen the conservation and management of this two-thirds of the world's ocean, half the planet that's been ignored for so long. And the... Um, uh, unfortunately, we have to use the United Nations. It's slow. It's ponderous. It takes forever to get anything done. But it's the place where international agreements have to be forged. So it's like the climate. Uh, it doesn't, the ocean beyond national jurisdiction doesn't belong to any one nation. It belongs to all nations. So all nations have to agree on how to manage it. And we got involved in this because it seemed to us that you know, here's half the planet. Nobody knows what's out there. We know more back about the backside of the moon than we do about our own deep ocean. <laughs> and, you know, it's time to strengthen the, the conservation and management of this area. 
before it gets overrun by the kinds of pressures that have uh, influenced and harmed our coastal waters. So that's why we got involved. So we thought here is a once in a generation opportunity to, to strengthen protection for half the planet. And then how lucky is that, you know, yeah. to work on something like that? It, it's truly incredible. I mean, the way just hearing you, and I, I know about this a bunch, obviously, because we're working on it with you, but um, to hear you say it like that, a once in a generation opportunity, because it's kind of trying to get upstream of a problem, right? Which is always, it's the thing that I think we as environmentalists are always kind of going, oh, how do we go clean up this mess? But it's way better if we can get ahead of something and protect a place proactively. And you're talking about two thirds of the, of the planet, right? Um, and so it's just so important that we actually get out there and protect it before it's too late. Now, I mean, unfortunately we're actually already seeing a lot of biodiversity loss and we're seeing some of these activities where, you know, our fisheries are uh, under threat of collapse and all that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's almost getting too late, but it's not because protection can actually um, help the ocean's resilient. It can rebound, exactly. correct? Exactly. And, you know, um, I was thinking about this the other day, that as the biodiversity report, uh, or so you, you had uh, mentioned the biodiversity uh, problems that have been emerging. And last year, a UN scientific panel found that close to a million species around the, uh, across the earth, across the planet, are at risk of extinction. And in the ocean, uh, the problem has mostly been related to overfishing and to pollution to some extent. Now it's climate change is looming over everything. So the ocean is warmer than at any time in recorded history. It's more acidic than any time in the last 14 million years. And it's losing oxygen as a result of the changes in ocean currents and stratification. And so suddenly we now have this looming threat of climate on top of the other stressors that are already uh, out there. And so our goal is to, number one, reduce emissions. So NRDC has a huge program to address climate change and stop it. But even if we stopped emissions tomorrow, there's enough change built into the system that the ocean faces major threats. And so the most important thing that scientists tell us we can do for the ocean, besides reducing emissions, is to strengthen the resilience by reducing other stressors. So protecting areas, protecting large areas of the ocean from other stressors like fishing, shipping, noise pollution, chemical pollution, et cetera, can help enhance the resilience of the ocean. It's like a person who is healthy, is better able to to withstand cancer treatment than a person that is suffering from a variety of other problems. So that's our goal here, is to strengthen the resilience of the ocean by reducing the number of stressors in the high seas as well as within the coastal zones. That's a great way to summarize it. Um, You know, it's a... you know, the kind of death by a thousand cuts, right? You know, um, all these things combined together with climate change on top of it is a real, you know, uh, cocktail for disaster. Um, but we do have solutions. And so it's, it's really about creating the political will to go back to the UN and go back to your work. I think sometimes people are, um, you know, we get impatient as individuals and we want to see direct action or know what we can do as individuals. But in a lot of these cases, this 
political will at the highest level of the planet is really important because you need all these different stakeholders and voices involved. And you need every country at the table, at least as many as you can get at the table to be a part of the conversation, to all agree at the highest level and then pave the way for those countries and nonprofit organizations and local constituents to do the work. You know, it's really about kind of greasing the, you know, the skids, like make it enable them to do their work in their local community. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? So, yeah, I think, um, and one of the things that has been really lacking, at least in the arena of the high seas, is political pressure that comes up, as you said, from the bottom up to to the heads of state. Well, fish can't talk, unfortunately. Fish can't talk. (laughs) And we've we've fished all of them out. So (laughs) Even if they could, right? So one of the one of the really cool things I like about working with WSL and Pure is the fact that you have so many followers and they are all young, they're all passionate about the ocean, and I've I've seen it and I'm just wowed. And I feel like that capturing that energy, that uh, demand for change can really help motivate real change in the ocean on the water. And so working with WSL and, and Pure, I think uh, collaborating with you guys as, and, and our other collaborators is just a really exciting opportunity to, to push this forward. And it sounds very arcane and remote, but the UN is just made up of people. And people are listening to their governments and their governments are listening in most cases, to their their <laughs> citizens. So the more noise citizens can make, the more change that can happen and trickle up through that process. So I'm excited, and I think we're at a key point in um, this whole process. And I I feel like awareness of the ocean and the need to protect the ocean is higher than it's ever been in my 37 years at NRDC. People understand there's a problem. We do not have time. We can't wait for COVID-19 to be over. We need to move ahead. So that's, that's what we're doing. That's well said. And and it sounds like, you know, there are a couple of things that I want to tee up here, but um, it sounds like we know what the solution is, or at least we know what the numbers are that we need to hit. Uh, and so I'm, I'm wondering if you can yes. talk a little bit about 30 by 30 and mm-hmm. talk about that in context of what this week is. So today, today's Thursday, um, tomorrow is May 22nd and it is the, uh, international day for biodiversity, right. Yeah. It's celebrated by the, uh, convention on biological diversity. So, um, you know, it's, it's not an earth day. It's not even a world oceans day. It's often a kind of more forgotten about environmental day, but it's a very important day. And biodiversity is a critical component of our, of our life here on this planet. Uh, biodiversity mm-hmm. provides a lot of ecosystem services. So we have international biodiversity day. And in a couple of weeks we have world oceans day. And so, um, we're teeing up some work together that we're going to release to the world uh, in a campaign, which we'll get to in a second. But, um, I thought maybe you could touch on like, what is the science telling us we need to do? Do, uh, mm-hmm. to protect this biodiversity. Yep. So, um, like I said before, the key thing is to protect very large areas from other stressors. And so the science is kind of converging around the need to protect at least, to fully or highly protect at least 30% of the ocean in order to bolster resilience. Some people say more. Some people say 50. What, right what's now the, what's we're the current at two. Percent? Two. <laughs> 2.5. So now those numbers 
are sometimes argued that it's maybe four or five percent. I've seen as high as seven percent thrown out there. Um, but you said fully and highly protected. And I know that exactly. those words exactly are very important. So what, what does that actually mean? So uh, a variety, there are a variety of types of marine protected areas, so-called marine parks in the ocean. Some of them prohibit almost all industrial activities. Those would be fully and highly protected. Uh, others allow certain things to happen. So there are protected areas in Canada where they allow oil drilling. There are protected areas, you know, that are protected only for a certain period of time uh, to allow, for example, uh, sea lion reproduction uh, off the Aleutian Islands. Those are tend to be counted in the total protected areas, and that number is the seven to eight percent. What we're talking about is giving nature an opportunity to thrive un, by prote completely protected from all kinds of industrial activities. So indigenous use, you know, sort of recreational, mild recreational use, fine. But no big bottom trawlers, no industrial purse saners, no seabed mining, you know, no, you know, exploration for oil and gas, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the major stuff. Exactly. Um, so that's the key point. So it's 30% and it's by, there's a, there's a date on it too, right? Right. By 2030. And the reason that date is, is there is because there's an international body called the Convention on Biological Diversity. And the leaders of that convention meet every 10 years. It's, uh, and wow. they that's a, last, that's a long... <laughs> Gestation period for Actually, ideas. They, they will. They they meet more often than that. I misspoke. They they <laughs> the official set official meeting is like every targets. ten years. Okay, there you go. Because I know there's they, a bunch more yeah, meetings. There are definitely a bunch more meetings. They set. They meet every ten years to set new biodiversity targets. Those are targets to achieve greater biodiversity. And the last one was in 2010 and the next one was supposed to be in October, but it will not take place until um, probably next year. So, but that meeting is key because it'll set targets for biodiversity conservation in forests, in wetlands and in the ocean for the next 10 years. So our campaign is geared around getting international agreement on the part of everybody to protect 30% of the ocean by 2030, fully and highly. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it's it's such a cool thing, and and you you know you deserve a lot of credit for bringing this campaign to my attention. Really, I'd I'd only loosely heard of it, and you were the one who really put it on my radar and said like, hey, this is going to be a big thing. And this was, um, I mean, almost a year ago, it was maybe last fall, and you started more, saying yeah. like, hey, yeah. next year this is going to be a big thing. You know, you guys want to start working on this, um, and, and so we did, and we and we put our heads together, and there was a reason why we actually combined our efforts here beyond just it's the right thing to do is there seemed like there was a strategic sort of opportunity for us to kind of you know rally in certain places and so i'm curious i mean your work having seen you behind the scenes at the un it seems very very strategic because the un works a certain way every country has different interests so the nrdc basically has to map out and understand who, which country has which interest and what are they going to accept or adopt and how do we get them to see another side of these things so that maybe they come to the table and we all get there, right? I mean, essentially what's happening is the UN is just a bunch of delegates all 
debating, right? And negotiating. I mean, that's, yep. and it's all these like side meetings and side meetings. And then there's the influence and it's getting this minister of the environment here to maybe come influence this one and say, hey, come on, you want, you want to get on board. Is that kind of what yeah. it is? Exactly. I mean, you walk into this huge room and you're sitting in a semicircle around, you know, with all of the countries represented and there's a president in the front and the president is is basically walking through the various pieces of the negotiations that have to be resolved. So when I first started going in there, I was like, what the heck am I doing here? You know, and, and in fact, when I first started working at the UN, I had, I was with a colleague of mine, we were sitting outside a conference room and a delegate came out and said, oh, are you waiting to clean the room? <laughs> I mean, this place is like a throwback or it wow. was, it's much better now, but anyway. Uh, so uh, and it, anyway, so um, it's a hard place to kind of penetrate at first, but you know, it's like anything else, Reese. If, if you establish personal relationships with the delegates, it's really a, a lot about that. And, you know, we bring, we try to assist in, in ways that we can, bringing scientific expertise in, bringing legal expertise in, helping to find compromises between different interests, helping to, to facilitate the development of regional positions by different groups of countries. So it's, um, but it's all basically based on the personal relationships that we've been able to develop with many of these delegates over the years. And that's part of, I mean, you know, again, to have you in this role or, and in this position in field for 37 years at one organization, that longevity, one, doesn't really exist at a lot of companies anymore. Um, and that's why that's so important. But two, that's that shows that strength of those donors and the members who support the NRDC to enable you to do this really important work. Um, so I think like to anyone who's not a member of NRDC, if you've been thinking about where you can put your dollars, I'll plug it for you. If, you know, I'm a proud member. You know, listen, just throw some bucks to NRDC if you want to think about one really good way that you can help the climate, help the ocean, uh, NRDC is doing that important work. Um, but it also Thanks. helped inform the overall strategy. Again, going back mm -hmm. to that, I think like not to get into every single country, but when you map out countries that have large EEZs, exclusive economic zones, it just so happens that there are a lot of waves in those exclusive economic zones. <laughs> the places with more coastline have more waves. And it was one of those things where we looked at the places that the WSL goes on tour, some of the favorite waves even off tour, and we said, holy crap, like these are where our people are. These are where our, our surfers are, our, our friends and community. And we said, if we can help bring this message to them to let them know, hey, you need to be a part of helping protect your coastline and help protect what's outside of your coastline, right? Because yeah. the ocean is all connected. That's this whole concept of the We Are One Ocean campaign of the show, WSL Pure One Ocean. It's like, it's all connected. And so um, that's where my eyes lit up because I went, oh, South Africa, Japan, yeah. Brazil, Australia, USA. I mean, all these places, Indonesia. I mean, huge coastlines, tons of waves, and really important to the UN targets that you know we're trying to get set. So that's where it was really exciting to work with you on this campaign. And, and I guess yeah. you know, in a very sort of informal way. But in next week, we're going to be launching this campaign together, and I couldn't be more excited to start to engage the surf community and the broader ocean community. In this campaign, because we now have, um, you know, partners in this coalition who are sailors and organizations that have nothing to do with surfing, but they're just like, this is important and we all need to get behind these targets together. So I want to thank you. I mean, thanks for bringing out this this initiative to us and, and working with us on it. 
Well, I'll tell you how excited I was when I heard that there was a surfing organization that was actually interested in trying to promote conservation because, you know, not everybody does. And um, I really feel, if we talk about how long things take, big things take a while. They take investment. They take a long-term investment. And we have now gotten to the point where I think we're right at the edge of major change. And WSL surfers are really a very vibrant group and who are passionate about ocean conservation. And so the idea of, de of deploying this army of young people who are anxious to see change is just so awesome. And I am could not be more excited. And I'm also really excited about the fact that you've reached out to sailors and other industries that are, uh, you know, have an interest in ocean conservation and really want to make change. So, you know, and there's photographers, there are, there's, there's a whole um, universe and community of people who love the ocean. And I think together we can get this over the finish line. We can get 30 by 30 and we can achieve the kind of conservation gains we need for the ocean and for our, for ourselves. Yeah. And I mean, what, what better, you know, um, initiative to pursue. Um, so we're really excited. So it's going to be live next week. The campaign website is we are one ocean.org. Um, mm -hmm. we're pushing for 30 by 30. We're saying that we want to see 30 by 30 fully and highly protected using the official verbiage. Um, and it'll be a petition. We want you know everyone listening and everyone you know uh, to sign this petition. Um, we're going to send that to the uh, Secretary General for the UN Convention on Biodiversity, and we're going to uh, encourage you to also reach out to your representative for your country or here in the U.S. for your state. And it's important that they hear from you and hear why the ocean is important to you, and understand that you know protection does not mean um, it prevents us from using the ocean. It just means we use it smarter. You know, yes. if we protect certain areas with a marine protected area, that's going to increase the spillover of the fish that grow in those areas, the nurseries it provides, and provide fish elsewhere where we can fish. You know, it's going to enable us to have healthier oceans overall. So we're really excited about this campaign, Lisa, and thank you for your strategic input. Um, I don't know, it's just it's just so fun and. and and we have a couple articles, you know, the theme of this week is, is biodiversity. The articles that go along with this, if you want to read more about this is one, I definitely encourage you to go to nrdc.org and check out their oceans program. Um, but we also have uh, Enric Sala, you mentioned photographers, wrote a really great, um, you know, he's a conservationist, he's a Nat Geo um, explorer. He wrote an article, Nature is Our Best Antiviral in Project Syndicate. And he really highlights that we need to hit 30 by 30. I mean, he's been a really staunch advocate for this. And um, I don't, do you know Enric? I would guess that you you know him through your Everybody work. knows Enric. <laughs> he, is, uh, he is a legend in the ocean conservation community. I've known him for years. And um, he really, he nailed it. I mean, it's really true. And it's interesting how many new medicines are coming from the ocean. And that's one of the points he makes that, you know, we have medicines now from the ocean that treat HIV, that treat cancer, heart disease, almost every disease known to man. And just earlier this month, the first antiviral treatment was developed from a sea sponge that is now approved by the FDA for treatment of COVID-19. So there's a lot out there. I didn't there. realize that. That's incredible. Yeah, there's a lot out there. I mean, that's part of... The argument is we haven't explored enough. We have no idea what's out there, really. We, you know, big airliners get lost there and, you know, we can't find them. Right. It's, you know, we just don't know what 
is out there and we need to protect a lot of it before we destroy it. But I think we have a real, again, opportunity to, to move this ahead and things are com coming together in a cool way. And this very difficult time for COVID-19, I think has brought to mind in many people how important nature is. You know, we all, for, for me anyway, it sustains me. It gets me through, you know, my teenage kids arguing through. <laughs> <laughs> Just go outside. <laughs> go outside. It gets me through all these Zoom meetings, you know, where you're talking to 10 million different people from all over the world. Yeah. And it really, and people are beginning to get that how important nature is, how important the ocean is, and that we ha don't have a lot of time to go out there and protect it. So let's do it. Yeah, I love it. Uh, the other article, just for everyone to go check out, it's a very, very well said, Lisa, but I just want to just kind of get these in. Um, the new high seas treaty could be a game changer for the ocean. So it's specifically, this one's from the Revelator and um, a really good article in depth going on about how the ocean is not protected very much, but uh, how important that is. And it does talk about the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and <laughs> which I'm sure you're familiar with and have worked on. Um, <laughs> And, you know, the different ways in which we need to engage with this really important initiative. Um, it even goes into a little bit of the sort of uh, the politics of it, which is going to be challenging, right? Certain countries have different interests. And of course, um, you know, at the UN level, we need to get that consensus. And that's what this work is all about. How do we get everybody to the table and make sure that we're equitable for, for everyone involved? Um, so I don't know. I, I'm super excited. I'm moving along because I want to I want to get to the fan questions. We had so many questions uh, for you. <laughs> um, we, we put it out to the world and we said, you know, who's got questions for Lisa? We had questions from all over the world, truly. And um, I'm excited to kind of go through these. So because we have so many, we're not, we're not going to be able to uh, ask all of them. Um, but I do want to get to a bunch of them. Do your best to answer them quickly. So okay. your, your shorter answers. I know that got you it. could, you know, write an Ramble essay. Ramble <laughs> But here's the first one is, yeah. what advice would you give to someone going into marine conservation? And that oh, comes from uh, Sarah Nicole Lee on Instagram. Oh, awesome. So first of all, do it. It's a huge and growing field, really. Uh, you know, there is so much to be done and we need more people who are smart, effective, and who can really advance conservation. If it's on the scientific level, the legal level, the advocacy level, do it. Love it. That's a great answer. Um, so a, a friend outside is better. Uh, my friend Nick, he works in at USC Sea Grant program, or he was at USC Sea Grant, um, but he's still, I forget where he moved to now. Um, but he had a bunch of, he had a couple really good questions because he's pretty familiar with this space. He said, what is the role of local governments in pushing international policy efforts? And he, he kind of specifically is hitting on, you know, how can we ethically drive uh, international conservation efforts without helicoptering into less developed countries? Who are we to tell them what policies they should adopt? You know, likely the U.S. government has stifled their economic growth. He really kind of went on. And, and then mm -hmm. I want to bucket in a couple other questions um, from Cliff Capono, who is a, a friend and surfer out of Hawaii. Uh, he asked, should local communities manage their own MPAs instead of foreign conservancy groups? So I guess the question is, what yeah. is the balance between local government versus international or, you know, other governments from other nations? And what is the role of sort of local indigenous people? Like Cliff is, you know, Hawaiian. And so he's thinking about his indigenous people and their management versus yeah. a government coming in and telling them what to do. Yep. So all really good questions. So taking the local government uh, question first. 
So 30 by 30 isn't just in the international world. I should have said that. It's also an effort that's going on within each individual country. And local governments can have a huge say in making that happen, right? Because a lot of decisions that are made around land use are made locally. So if local communities can get behind 30 by 30, that's important, not just for the local community itself, but it shows the state at the state level and at the federal level that there's interest in pursuing 30 by 30. The U.S. should be, we should absolutely be doing 30 by 30 in our own waters and local communities are the foundation of that. With respect to how, you know, the, the helicoptering in of big, you know, international groups to establish protected areas, that is not what we're talking about here. First of all, most of the protected, the, the international waters are not owned by anybody. So I'm in the discussion of the high seas agreement, right. which we started with, there is very little use other than by the, the handful of developing countries that go out there and fish or mine or do other things. This is not an indigenous community generally uh, led area. So in some ways it needs to be top down because Otherwise, the only people out there are the ones who are exploiting it. And that exploitation can have impacts within the zones. I, I can imagine, I mean, you know, if the U.S. and Russia and China and, um, you know, the European fishing fleets all go out and wipe out some fishery stocks and or continue to impact the ocean in such a way that those fisheries are depleted. Well, that's going to impact all of those local fisheries across, you know, exactly. Asia Pacific or across the African coastline. And that's where, you know, we saw, you know, there was an article a couple of years ago about how China was fishing off of Africa's coastline and essentially going like, all right, we're going to come over here, take your fish and then bring it back to our country. And that's that's where regulation needs to come into place to, you know, help make it equitable for everyone. So, um, yeah, out in the international waters, there's no one out there. And really, policies in the international waters are going to benefit all those local communities and indigenous populations. Exactly. So we think. Cool. Exactly. Yep. A lot of questions about fishing. Um, you know, yeah. uh, Nick also is asking about um, domestic fisheries. It's He, he kind of felt like uh, it feels like when we just push environmental harm to other places by protecting our local spot, but then going out and, you know, harming those other places. Uh, Joanne Defay, who's one of our surfers, uh, a French surfer on the championship tour, said, how important is it to regulate fishing? Um, she says, you know, I'm, I love to eat fish, but what is a good balance between enjoying some fish but not supporting these big industries? Um, Sam Gaff asked, is there really such a thing as sustainable fishing? And um, Viney Travel asked, how can we manage protected spaces in the ocean and forbid fishing in these areas? So there's a question of like, can we fish sustainably? Is it even a thing? And if we are going to protect these areas, how do we manage them? You know, how do you protect it if there's no one out there? Yeah. So um, really good suite of questions. And fishing right now is the single most important human impact, has the single mo largest human impact of any. So with respect to shifting the burden question, the first one, one of the, um, the key things about MPAs is that they tend, if they're well cited, protecting areas that are important to fisheries can generate more fish so that you get more fish outside the protected area for people to have to, to enjoy. With respect to um, sustainable fishing, there are some people who believe there is no such thing that is an oxymoron. Uh, that you can or that you can sustainably fish, you know, at a very low level where, you know, all the stocks are depleted and you just keep them depleted forever. And so sustainable fishing, in my view, is 
not necessarily the goal because you can have it sustained and totally depleted. Um, in terms of the um, managing fisheries, I, I think it's absolutely essential and we've done a terrible job at it. We've driven species after species down, down, down. You look at the, FA, the food and agriculture organization curves and they're all in the same direction. And we're not gonna be able to do that forever. We've gotta manage our fisheries better. People around the world uh, rely on fish for their basic protein. And so people are not gonna eat if we don't do a better job at, fish, at managing our fisheries. But I just wanna also say, it's not just about marine protected areas, it's about improving management outside the protected areas. So when we talk about 30 by 30, when one of the pieces that doesn't get talked about so much and should in my view, is what happens in the other 70. We don't want to just let every everything go to hell in a handbasket in the other seven days. <laughs> we need to strengthen protection and management out there too. Well said. Um, I got three more questions I want to get to. Um, why is the high seas? Oh no, sorry. Um, can you point to any silver lining opportunities to expand efforts as a result of COVID nineteen? This is from C Evans nine nine nine. I guess basically, like you know, does this provide us some kind of? Is there some silver lining here of what we see coming out of this? Uh, good question. I mean, the only thing that I, you know, I, I do think that I'm going to flip it around and say this has illustrated to me that this event with COVID-19 has illustrated to me um, with the advent of these new medicines coming out of the sea, how important it is for us to better understand the ocean. And hopefully that will illuminate to more people the need to get out there, do some science before we wreck it all. Yeah, um, that's well said. You're, you're doing a great job fielding tough questions here. Um, here. Here's one, how long do we have to save the world? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say 2030, we got 10 years. There you go. 30 by 30, that's, that's the end, I'll spare you one. Um, okay. And then the, finally we had a number of people, um, Dave's Burgers, Nameless Dudes, Eleanor Blatch, Sam Scoville, Polly Norama. I can't read all these Instagram handles. Anyway, everyone was basically saying, what's the best way to help at a local level and on an individual level? What are good entry ways to participate support? What can everyone do to help preserve biodiversity? How can I get involved to help? Everyone wants to know what can they do? Yeah, well, that's great. I'm so glad to hear it. And uh, there are a lot of things that, can, that you can do. Um, for one thing, please go to the weareoneocean.org site. And when that site la launches, there will be a petition there that uh, we'll send to the Secretary General and to others your demand to see this 30 by 30 happen. So that's one step. On a more local level, if you can and you're comfortable with getting locally involved in establishing the protection, marine protected areas in consultation with other users locally, that those ground up um, MPA efforts tend to be the most successful because they are they involve consultation. It was sort of implied in the previous questions. You you really need agreement um, locally down, and then call. I know this sounds very boring, but <laughs> write your president, write your states, your your representatives in Congress. Write everybody you can, do editorials. And, you know, when you go to the beach, talk to people, talk to other people. Say, hey, you know, there's this campaign out there on 30 by 30. Go to weareoneocean.org, nrdc.org, and sign up. Uh, so, so there are lots of things that can be done. And 
I think this group of surfers that you guys have are just a gold mine. And that gold mine can really help unlock a lot of these barriers to conservation in the ocean. So I'm thrilled to be part of it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Lisa. That, I think that's a great note to end on uh, getting engaged. I would also tell everyone, go join NRDC, go support, <laughs> you know, get behind, sign the petition, support and donate and support the great work that NRDC does to, to protect our planet. Um, it's really, really important. And uh, it's a real pleasure to work with you. And thank you for your friendship and mentorship. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a joy to catch up, hopefully in person sometime soon. It's awesome. Awesome to work with you with WSL and all your great surfers. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks, Lisa. Take care. Thanks again to Lisa for joining us this week and for all the work that you and your team do to protect the ocean. I know how hard you work and I know how important it is. We are so excited to launch this campaign with you. I mean, truly, I just can't wait to get this thing out and live. So listeners, before you move on to your next podcast, anyone watching before you move on to the next show, please make sure you're subscribed here and please make sure if you're not subscribed here that you're at least following along at WSL Pure so we can let you know when the campaign is live so that you can share your voice and be a part of this campaign. It's going to take all of us. And one of the coolest things about this podcast and this show is the community that we're building from the questions that we get when we say, hey, send us a question for Lisa to um, the people who engage in our social media to you know fans who send us in um, emails about local conservation issues. And we have one that we're going to share this week. It's really important that we all get aligned behind this bigger issue because it's going to pave the way for governments and states and local environmental orgs to do the conservation work they need to do. So we're really excited to bring this to you and really, really appreciate your support. Of course, go check out NRDC. We'll link to them in the show notes. Um, But if you can become a member, they're really, truly one of the best environmental orgs out there. If you can't afford it, totally cool, but do follow along on social media and, you know, learn from what they're doing and the ways in which they work. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we had a really cool email come to us a few weeks back from Annie in Washington. Um, she emailed us about the Chehalis River Dam project proposal, and uh, it puts that local area at risk, including a surf spot at Westport. I've actually been there. It's a beautiful, beautiful area, and I'd hate to see anything happen to it. Um, Annie's already doing the work. She's out there uh, trying to get in touch with Surfrider Foundation, Save the Waves Coalition. We also saw, Annie, that Twin Bay Waterkeeper is an org that's active on this, and the Conservation Northwest org has a comment uh, period currently open. So if you're in the Pacific Northwest and you care about that region and the environment there, go learn about the issue and go express yourself in this public comment period that'll be sent to the state you have until may 27th we also literally just noticed right before we recorded this that there is a film on youtube called shea hollis a watershed moment it was only released a couple days ago we haven't had a chance to watch it yet but it does appear to give the issue solid coverage so if you're interested in understanding this local issue about how this river system is changing flooding might need a dam, might not, and how it can affect a local surf spot and the environment around it, then I encourage you to go learn up, uh, get yourself learned up on this issue. Um, Thanks for sending that in, Annie, and thanks to everyone else who engages with us on social media. Um, We got to as many questions with Lisa as we could this week. If we didn't get to yours, we're sorry, but please, you know, keep us posted. That's all we got for this week. We're super excited to see you next week when we get this campaign going, and thanks for listening. See ya.